Our final scripture lesson this morning comes from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people because he himself was tested by what he suffered. He is able to help those who are being tested. Would you pray with me? Author of life, we give thanks for your word this morning, and we ask that your spirit would be with us as we reflect upon your word and transform us in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. So as I said earlier, today is World Communion Sunday. That means it's a day that we celebrate the oneness of Christ's church. In a global church like the United Methodist Church, that means remembering the connection that we have with all of our brothers and sisters around the globe who call themselves United Methodists. But it also means remembering the connection we have with all those who share our heritage as Wesleyans, as Protestants, as Western Christians, and indeed, as any kind of Christian at all. It is a day that we humble ourselves before the divisions of history and affirm that we are all one in Christ. This is a day that feels important to me given our current cultural climate. We live in a world that is more connected than ever 
a world where I can stay in touch with friends and family scattered across the planet at a moment's notice. But we all know that it is also a world that is just as fragmented as it has ever been. The very same tools that connect us to one another also allow us to form isolated communities of hatred. In fact, within our denominational structures, these tools allow us to form groups that seek to exclude each other from the family of Christ. There are those who look at their brothers and sisters in Christ and do not see the image of God. All they can see are the ways in which they feel others are bringing shame to the gospel. And I will admit that there are times when I feel ashamed of the way that my brothers and sisters in Christ behave. When I see self-proclaimed Christians use their power and authority to bully and harass the weak and the marginalized, I feel shame. Today's scripture challenges this reaction, though. So I want us to consider this morning what the text means when it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call humans brothers and sisters. But to start there is to start in the middle of the story. We have to back up and first understand who Jesus was in order to understand what it meant for him to walk among us. And so the letter to the Hebrews begins with an introduction to the person of Jesus Christ. It's an idea that is familiar to all of us now, but is so incredible that it is worth reiterating. God, having spoken through the prophets in the past, decided finally to speak to humanity through a son. No longer content to interact from afar, God chose to live alongside us, to experience life as humans do. And although we call him God's son, we know that in truth they are one and the same. The author of Hebrews describes Christ's nature by writing, he is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's being. Jesus is not like God, not a creation of God, but God's exact being. And I know that this may seem a really simple point to those of us who grew up hearing the Christian story, but its implications are profound. Our God loves us so much that in order to better understand our lives, God chose to live a life like ours. And this love was so deep that God didn't merely choose to come in the form of an emperor or king, but to come as one of the lowliest members of society. God's decision to take on human form was a decision to take on the form of a person from the wrong side of the tracks, a backwoods nobody. And in his time on this earth, God chose to be around the folks that the society said no respectable person would be caught dead with. Prostitutes, foreigners, tax collectors who sold out their own people for the rewards of the empire. The author of Hebrews observes, it was fitting that God, in bringing many children to glory, 
should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. In other words, God's plan for salvation intentionally includes being with the suffering. God, in order to better love his children, first had to walk a mile in their shoes. He saw the sick, the poor, the outcast, and knew that in order to know their pain, he actually had to be with them. The theologian Yvonne Jabara expands on this idea in her book, Out of the Depths, Women's Experience of Evil and Salvation. And where she ends up is that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is an act of solidarity with the countless acts of cru crucifixion that happen every day. We're so far removed from crucifixion as a form of punishment that it's hard for us to understand the shame involved in that action. To a world where a person's honor was practically a form of currency, those who were crucified were publicly displayed so that all the world could know that they had no honor. Jesus' death on the cross was a death at the hands of a government intent on making an example of those who were disruptive to society. Yet even this indignity could serve God's redemptive plan. Through this humiliating death, God showed that he was willing to go to any length in order to understand our pain. Christ's death on the cross was the final act of a ministry dedicated to love. It was a final chance to show that there is no distance too far for God's love to reach. And through this suffering and death, he showed that he has the power to overcome the suffering of this world. For as the scripture says, the children share flesh and blood. He himself likewise shared the same things so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. What's more, the scripture continues on to say, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might make a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. In other words, God became flesh because the only way for God to be faithful to his children was by knowing firsthand the trials and tribulations of our lives. This reminder of who Christ is beautifully coincides with our act of communion today. As we come to the table, we are coming to the feast of a God who loves us through our suffering. It is a God who sees those who have been domestically abused or sexually assaulted without shame. Instead, God sees the sacred worth of those whom others have violated. Even though our culture finds ways to encourage victims to bear the consequences for their attackers, God does not do so. God's message is a message of liberation. It is a message that says, you are not at fault for what has been done to you. It is okay for you to set aside the shame and the guilt that society places on you. You are not diminished by the actions of your attacker. You are still a child of sacred worth.
this is perhaps a fairly easy idea to get on board with. But what challenges me is that God is not ashamed to call the sinner brother or sister either. And the only way that I can come to terms with this is that even those who commit evil are still children made in the image of God. Even those who violate the dignity of their fellow human beings have that essential breath of divinity somewhere within their being. And for them, God weeps as well. It must break God's heart to see his children corrupt themselves through such violence and perversion. And so we are challenged as well to call one another to accountability, to see the divine image not just in those who are sinned against, but in those who sin. It is imperative that we show grace and mercy to the injured. It is just as imperative that we expect honest repentance from those who create injury. God came to help the descendants of Abraham to free us from slavery to sin and death. And so, in communion, we have another chance to come face to face with God, to experience liberation through God's unending love, and to earnestly repent of the evils that we have done. Amen.